The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, October 24th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca and I'm in Chicago, home of Wrigley Field, site of the 2016 World Series. And before that, the 1945 World Series. And before that, the 1908 World Series. There are a few others in between, but it sounds more impressive when I just list the ones the Cubs won and ignore the White Sox won, you know. That gets in the way of the Chicago's never done it before narrative. So what I'm going to do on today's show is I'm going to tell you about 1908. And I'm going to go a little more in depth than the, uh, you know, a Roosevelt was the president then. And it wasn't even the Franklin Delano one. I'm going to go beyond that. And that will be in the spiel. But first, I would like to tell you, I would like to admit that I could have been in Chicago many hours before now. But my plane left LaGuardia. And then immediately doubled back, which I always thought was a redundant phrase, except if you're living it and you see the route that the plane took, looking at the same house on Long Island's Gulf Coast a few times. By the way, do you ever do this in the air? You see something interesting when you take off in a plane and you say, I've got to Google Earth that later. I've got to do some recon on what I'm seeing. I've got to triangulate this view from the air with the address on the street. I guess you don't do that if you're flying out of like Duluth Airport. It's cornfield another cornfield. Anyway, we double back and then word comes down why we did this. What was wrong with the plane? And do you know what that word was? Bird. Bird was the word. The airline collided with a bird. One bird. Now, to be fair, it was former West Virginia Democratic Senator Robert Bird. No, it was just a bird, a flighted avian creature. And the plane returns home. Maybe the birds were engaging in an act of radical protest. The, uh, the Buddhist monk immolation bird version due to the lionization of Sully still in theaters. I do have to say upon landing, I looked at the captain and I asked myself, okay, if uh, this was a miracle on the Hudson part two, who would I cast? I look like a cross between Liev Schreiber and former Houston Oilers quarterback Dan Pastorini. But you know, Liev Schreiber is such range that he could convey the Dan Pastorini-ness within. This whole thing, it really, really makes you realize just how fragile life is. I mean, for the birds, speaking about the birds. We are in this multi-million dollar miracle of engineering. We are in this essentially relentless death machine to all avian kind. We are going to be okay. But the birds, afterwards, they said it was actually a good thing that the plane came back because the bird was actually stuck in the engine. It was a bloody mess of feathers and swirling steel blades or how Bjork's living will specifies her method of euthanasia. Iceland is very progressive, you know. So we got on the next flight. It was a new plane. And then they told us, all right, we're 17th for takeoff. And we were all upset. But can you imagine if the birds, the family of the deceased birds could see us all on the plane, all grumpy and upset because we're 17th in line? They're like, we haven't even buried Dave yet. And here you are, you're pissed off because you're 17th for takeoff. You people are monsters. You monsters are called people. You know, krill have at least had a few millennia to get used to whales. We birds, we have evolved over thousands of years. And in the last, I don't know, 75, there's this new apex predator in the sky. And we're supposed to sympathize with your plight? Oh, wait, you're going to O'Hare? Okay, did not know that. Baggage claim is a nightmare. You are never going to make your four o'clock. Sorry, dudes, didn't realize. On the show today, I go back to 1908 in the spiel, but first it's comedian and overall funny guy with high blonde hair, Adam Conover. He's out with an election day special, and I talked to him about that and his show, Adam Ruins Everything. 
The Gist is coming to your town, assuming that you live in the Los Angeles area. We have a live show this Saturday, October 29th, at the Now Hear This Podcast Festival in Anaheim, just a short drive away from downtown Los Angeles. We'll be joined by special guests, including Kelly McEvers from NPR's podcast Embedded and the comedian Andy Kindler. It's going to be a great show. There are still a few passes available if you want to see The Gist, Trumpcast, WTF, The Moth, and many other great shows. Head over to nowhearthisfest.com. And right now, you can use the promo code GIST to get 25% off your ticket. But hurry, passes are going quickly. Adam, it is said, ruins everything. That is not true. (laughs) What Adam does is he elevates everything. He makes us examine it. And then if you're like me, empirically based, you feel better. You have less anxiety. But I guess there's some people for whom being in the dark is, uh, is a state they prefer. Not me. Not Adam's viewers. Adam's here. What's up, Adam? Conover. Oh, not a lot. I just got into uh, New York last night uh, do, doing uh, press for this big uh, election special we're doing. And it, you're doing live shows around it, too, right? Yeah, yeah. We did. Well, we went on a tour for three weeks mm-hmm. uh, uh, all across the country. We went to Seattle and, and Portland and San Diego, and then we went down through Texas, and we went up through the Midwest and 15 cities, and then we taped it in Los Angeles, and uh, now it's going to, yeah, air on True TV. People who do this sort of thing say that, perhaps surprisingly to them, the best reaction is in blue cities, blue oases in red states. Did you find that? Like, they need this. Well, first of all, any city is a blue city for yeah. the most part. You know what I mean? Like, like it's hard to go to... Cincinnati. I'm trying to think. Even Salt Lake City is kind of a blue city. Exactly. Oh, yeah. That's that's exactly my point, right? <laughs> yeah. Is that Salt Lake, even like, you know, I realized that when I went to uh, Utah for the first time and went, or I have I have relatives in Utah. I used to visit them out in, in uh, Logan, Utah, which is a vi- ultra Mormon area. But then we went to Salt Lake and it's like, oh my God, yeah. they have an alt weekly and a yeah. punk scene. And, and, and like gay mayor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But um, and so- even a bar. <laughs> so uh, this is actually a topic we talked about doing for the special and we didn't do. Um, I'm sort of convinced that the actual division in American, insofar as there is one, um, between, you know, this type of person, that type of person politically, isn't red state, blue state. It's city and country. And that the states that are blue states are like, well, I don't know, get Nate Silver on this, whoever or whoever. But like that the the bluer states are the ones that tend to have a higher concentration, other population in cities. But that the concerns of liberals generally are things that are, in you know, that, that result from city life like in city life you're just like we just can't have so many guns around because people are killing each other oh, oh my god gosh. we have to feed the hungry because there are people dying in the streets and they're in my way to work Absolutely. you know like, and also you know, fear of the outsider in cities you rub up against the outsider you're maybe not in your car all the time I mean, maybe this is yeah, a New exactly. York City thing. you're like oh yeah but isn't that that's kind of a nice thing about humanity that the more you are in contact with people who are less like you Actually, the more you find it acceptable and that, you know, banning yeah. Muslims is like banning Muslims. Exactly. I'm with Muslims all the time. And it's that, it's that dense thing of, you know, like in New, in New York, you're on the subway and it's like everyone on the subway is like, look, we're all trying to get to work. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So if something goes wrong, everybody kind of pitches in. You know what I mean? Right. If there's a blockade, if someone stumbles, people help them up because it's like we don't want to get everybody get in the way. Right now, if you're <laughs> right. in people so help that, them up because oh, you're slowing my commute. Down. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. So there's a general responsibility for each other. Right. Whereas if you're way out 
out in the boonies and there's only one person per square mile, you know, of course you're going to be like, wait, why should anyone force me to help out someone who's a mile away I've never met before? And, you know, I'm working hard. It's hard out here for me. What You know what I mean? Yep. I think it breeds that kind of general perspective. But um, it is true that comedians will say, oh, yeah, if you go, you get a great reaction in, in Austin and places like that, you know, where uh, liberal, you know, liberals will say that when they go when they go do those uh, shows in in liberal cities and conservative states. But the whole thing about comedy is addressing uh, sort of the headspace that the whole audience is in. You know what I mean? Say, hey, we all feel like this, right? Yes. And then you do comedy off of it. Yes. I wanted to do a show that united sort of everybody in the country. Like, what are the ways that everyone in the country feels about the election? And what can we talk about those? You know, so that's why the topics for our show are this is the nastiest election ever. Well, is it really? You know, money in politics is like that's a that is a truly bipartisan issue. If everybody is pissed off about money in politics. And uh, we so we, you know, did that issue in a way that anyone in the country can watch, laugh at, enjoy and learn something right. and take away. There are a lot of comedians like you who are really into stuff that's really going on. Politics, nonfiction, yep. business. But, you know, the general way for them to channel it is through satire. Uh, but you have taken on a nonfiction role. What, what about you? Do you think? drives you in this direction <laughs> well i mean i've always been like an information sponge kind of person you know i, I it took me a long time to realize that about myself because i just did it you know sort of like breathing the air i would just like you know i mean i read until i got an iphone and moved to la which cut my reading time both those things you know i read every issue of the new yorker for like 15 years and uh, now in my car in la like i've supplanted that with audiobooks and podcasts i never listen to music you know the way i behave on the show uh and the uh, essential comedy engine of me interrupting people and them criticizing me being like oh man shut up that was just my life you know i would just do that and people would be like come on with this i get made fun of for doing it um and so it's wonderful to now turn what used to be a social liability into a strength that's like uh feels <laughs> now people like it when i do it incredibly it's like it's bizarre you know people like come to our shows and go like can you interrupt me or you know stuff i'm like okay geez but you know when i was in my 20s my friends hated that i did this they used to not invite me to parties i just noticed when i started slipping it into my stand-up people responded to it and they started leaning forwards you know listening more and and then they would come up to me after the next show and be like, oh, my God, I looked that up. That's true. You know, and and I think what it does is you realize as you do comedy that to a certain extent, making people laugh is like kind of cheap after once you can do it. You're like, OK, I can make people laugh repeatedly, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and you can do it, it better or worse. Involuntary and, response. Yeah, right? exactly. It's like touching a hot stove. It's yeah. an instinct. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you get to a point at a comedy writer where you're like, OK, we'll just put a joke in there and we'll, we know we can come up with a good one. And the challenge becomes more. How do you make comedy that makes people laugh and gives them something yeah. else? Else that's going to keep them coming back. So you want to stimulate areas of their brain other than the reptilian. But also there's this thing called the uh, satire paradox, which says that satire doesn't, the paradox, well, the general uh, finding is it doesn't really work. And the paradox <laughs> is people who are being satirized often don't know they're being satirized. And, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has uh, one of his revisionist history podcasts. I, heard, I haven't this. heard it, but a lot of people have mentioned this. So the me, thing yeah. that people know is uh, Tina Fey's impression of Sarah Palin didn't really do anything to undo uh, her popularity. In fact, people who like Sarah Palin identified with it. And I think that it's very hard for a comedian, and I wouldn't criticize a comedian who's doing great satire for not affecting change. It's not exactly their job. But when you say to me that people come up and said, oh, I read into that and it's really true, I bet that doesn't happen a lot or didn't happen a lot. People coming up to George Carlin with his you know, satirical <laughs> comedy saying, you're right, they are warmongers. Well, you know, look, I mean, George Carlin 
was hugely influential on me. You know, when 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 I heard him in college, and I you know relate to a lot of comedians. You know, John Stewart, sort of my Johnny Carson like figure of maximum importance. But but George Carlin like really change the trajectory of my life in a way um, in a way that was at first subtle and then uh, went on like he had a, a bit the planet is fine if you google it, it'll be the planet yes. it, it's the planet is fine do you know yeah, this it, was bit? A, it was a late yeah it was like an 80s album let me tell you about endangered species all right over 90 percent over way over 90 percent of all the species that have ever lived on this planet ever lived are gone they're extinct we didn't kill them all they just disappeared. That's what nature does. You know, he's making fun of the environmentalism of, of the 80s and 90s, which is, was very sanctimonious. And he says it's basically the idea is that like the hubris of us to think that, like, we're going to ruin nature with one of our plastic bags. Guess what? Like the earth will just integrate that plastic bag into a new paradigm, like a fucking hermit crab will live in it or whatever. And then, you know, pretty soon the Earth's going to shake us off like a bunch of fleas. Right now. By the actual standards of of like facts, I would factually dispute yeah. the the account. And I think if you if he was alive today, he would maybe say, oh, "Okay, we're having a bigger effect on the planet than I thought was possible in 1992." Right? But the power of that bit to give me a 180 degree revolution in the way that I saw the world, you know, and to realize that there was a different paradigm through which to see the world, and right. that it was an interesting and valid one to look at did change my life. So I do think it's true that, first of all, a lot, a lot of times when we're talking about satire, to me, I'm like, wait, this isn't satire. Uh, on, on a technical comedy level, I'm like, this is a person making, just a person making fun of Donald Trump is not satire. Right. That's just comedy, first of all, as a technical point. But also, after Jon Stewart revolutionized American comedy, right? And now Thousand Flowers have bloomed and there's all these people doing post-John Stewart comedy. I consider myself to kind of be doing post-John Stewart comedy. That comedy was so powerful in the mid-2000s that like the non-comedy press started taking notice, which was wonderful. Right now, comedy is taken more seriously, but it got too big of a reputation for, you know, its ability to, to change the world, right? Now, I do think if you look at the end of, you know, John Stewart's career at, the, at those last days of The Daily Show, you know, I always imagined him like, getting more and more exhausted because he's like, God damn it, I've been fucking making fun of Fox and Friends for 15 years and they're still on the air. Like, <laughs> I can't do it. You know, like like he like he seemed like a guy who was trying yeah, to move the yeah, world yeah. and maybe ultimately couldn't do it, right? But at the same time, he genuinely moved the needle of American culture and changed the minds of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people on, on small, subtle issues, you know, made them see the world a little bit differently, like opened their minds to what comedy could be, you know, had a real, you know, he did discuss real issues, changed people's minds about real issues and, and educated and informed them. You know, I, I totally agree that like we shouldn't expect satire to like be slaying Goliath uh, with a stone of comedy. That doesn't mean it's pointless. Who Who is asking it to do that? You know, yeah. but the, uh, so if there's a movie, a biopic of Jon Stewart and ends with him as a broken man leaving the Daily Show <laughs> as he hasn't changed anything, then the titles come on the screen and we see a grainy photo of Roger Ailes and it said, actually, two years later. This, <laughs> and then we see yeah. uh, Gretchen Carlson and then it says, and it turns out the Fox and Friends weren't really friends. <laughs> John Stewart was right all along. <laughs> well, and you'd and you would see Stephen Colbert and and John Oliver and Samantha Bee yeah. and, and and all those people, and and you'd see the fact that like people are people are hungering for that type of comedy, and not only that, that type of comedy is something that even the networks are specifically seeking out. They're like, how do we get ourselves some topical, relevant, news. Yeah. serious comedy? Yes. You know, NBC News yeah. said we need to. I mean, there we need to do our 
show like The Daily Show, which are just the juxtaposition of public statements and contradiction by the same person. And that editing style has, in fact, oh, that inf- editing style, yes. infected, or at least, I mean, to, to their credit, you watch all these MSNBC shows, they do exactly that Daily Show thing. Yeah. So here's my last question. Please. Does Adam Ruins Everything have a Moby Dick? Is there a comment, <laughs> uh, is there a topic either so complex or so Byzantine that you haven't been able to crack it? Well, that's a really good question. I always say that there's no topic that we won't do on the show. There's just topics that we want to be more careful to do right. Yeah. You know? So, so you're talking about Scientology. Uh, about. Oh, Scientology. That's low-hanging fruit. <laughs> Everybody already knows about Scientology. People always pitch me things that like ever, have already been thoroughly yes. you know, chewed up and spit out. Look, Scientol- yeah. Scientology is a minor religion. They've got, what, like 10,000 members? They got they own a lot of real estate. Scientology is no big deal. There's your headline. Adam calls Scientology a religion. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> um, there are issues. Every year there are issues that we want to do, and we, we wait a year and say, hey, we'll do that next year. Uh, one that I want to do last year and that we took a little bit of time to do properly uh, for this year is uh, climate change mm-hmm. and is, uh, you know, sort of our green culture and green products. I had to do more research and read more thinkers on the issue to sort of come to terms myself with the answer to try to to get my head around it. Uh, and so I finally found the work of, a, of an NYU uh, environmental uh, thinker named Dale Jameson, who sort of talks about the ethical dilemma of living in a post-environmental change world, you know, and about like basically about about liberating ourselves from this idea of saving the planet or not. And, and it's not pass fail. And and that instead, we should just be responsible for the minute day by day changes that we're making. And so I was like, OK, good. I, I had a problem. It was a major thought problem. And then I think I found a solution, a way out of it. Now I can present that to the audience. I have a lot more reading, perhaps a couple yes. years of reading to do before I can feel comfortable making any statement whatsoever, if even then. Adam Ruins Everything is the show. The Adam Ruins Everything election special airs Tuesday on True TV at 10. Adam Conover is, in fact, the titular Adam. Thank you for ruining my podcast, Adam. Oh, thank you for having me. And now the spiel. The Chicago Cubs, perhaps you've heard, were last in the World Series in 1908. You know, Theodore Roosevelt was president then. But that's sort of the egg icon of historical insight, craftier crafters of historical comparisons, a slightly more committed ilk might tell you that in 1908, Roosevelt was president, but Taft was about to be elected. Then Roosevelt would go on safari, come back, decide Taft had ruined things, and turn against his one-time protege. Taft did, however, become the first president to throw out a pitch at a baseball game 1910, so that was before 1908, and you thought T.R. was the man in the arena. Now, a clever historian might go beyond our country's borders, mention that in 1908 the Ottoman Empire still existed, fair enough, but we could do better than that, can't we? We've had 108 years to think of more vital ways to tell you how long ago 108 years was. Here are some of those ways. Sure, the Ottoman Empire was still a thing, so was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Wadai Empire in Central Africa. It was an emirate named Ha'il, which is part of Saudi Arabia. There weren't too many other countries. In 1908, the number of countries in the world numbered in the double digits, and not in the very high double digits. And that doesn't even count Newfoundland, which was a quasi-independent dominion of Great Britain, independent from Canada. There are now 192 countries in the UN. Nation states proliferate easier than Cubs championships. Forget countries. There were 85 known elements in 1908. Today, there are 118 elements on the periodic table. To be fair, elements 95 to 118, 
literally did not exist in 1908. They were created in laboratories. But Mendeleev worked up his chart. He was pretty good about having gaps about where elements existed. And in 1908, they had uh, still about 10 to go. The vast majority of Americans thought the Earth's years numbered in the thousands in 1908. Scientists, just a few years prior, suspected it may be in the millions. But in 1907, radioactive decay knowledge was deployed by Bertram Borden Boltwood. He placed the Earth's age in the billions, 2.2. He was wrong. It's about 4.4. The Earth, 4.4 billion years old. That predates even the Roosevelt presidency. Scientifically, 1908 does have something in common with the president. There were only eight planets in 1908, and there are eight today. Let us not speak of that benighted period from the discovery of Pluto in 1930 until its reclassification as a dwarf in 2006, when we thought we had nine planets. In this country in 1908, there were almost 89 million people, and more of them died of tuberculosis than anything else. The average age barely touched 50, This led to a strange and sad quirk in mortality statistics. In 1908, 700,000 Americans died. And infant mortality, Americans under the age of one, accounted for 20% of all deaths. Therefore, if you had a family member who died in 1908, it is more likely that that person was under the age of one than over the age of 70. Other causes of death in 1908... Measles, 4,000, typhoid, 11,000, whooping cough, 500, diphtheria, 10,000, diarrhea, enteritis, 52,000. That, by the way, is still true for many countries in sub-Saharan Africa. In 1908, 514 people died from abscesses and 208 died by carbuncle. In 1908, 66 Americans had their official cause of death listed as suicide by crushing. Suicide by firearms in 1908 was at 2468. Now it's at 21,000, which means that per capita, Americans are more likely to kill themselves by firearm today than they were in 1908, even though conditions were demonstrably worse then. We have Netflix. They had death by carbuncle. Though I do have to say that the stigma against suicide is lessened and government statistics have got better. So maybe it's not true that there are more gun suicides per capita today. On the other hand, we don't have any statistics on suicide attempts. So you have to take into account the fact that guns have gotten more efficient, which is to say more deadly. Good news. Only 393 Americans lost their lives in car accidents in 1908. Horses killed 1924. Streetcars, 1,696. Because of inflation... A nickel then was like a dollar now. Let's put this another way. Take a Seattle resident earning the minimum wage in his or her city, $15 an hour, working the work week of 40 hours. If that person earned those wages in 1908, they would have the spending power of someone who earned three quarters of a million dollars in today's money. Here's another way to look at that. The $15 an hour, 40 hour work week guy in 1908 would earn more money then then Chicago Cubs players Kyle Hendricks, Chris Bryant, Javier Baez, and Addison Russell earned this year in current dollars. Three quarters of the current Cubs infield, if you were b- buying at today's dollars, you'd have to put up $64,000 to pay their salaries if it were 1908. For a little perspective, this year, 2016, Dodgers pitcher Clayton Kershaw earned $71,000 for every single out he recorded in the regular season. I'm sure Dodgers fans are saying yes, but he didn't record 
enough of them in the postseason. Speaking of the Cubs, the 1908 Cubs were decidedly uncursed. The World Series only started in 1903. It was won by the Boston Americans. They later became the Red Sox. There were only two other World Series winning teams before the Cubs won in 1907 and 1908. They were the Giants and they were the Chicago White Sox who won in 1906. Now think of that. The World Series was won by Chicago teams three times in its first five years and so far twice in the next 107 results of this year still pending. In 1908, classical music was not really classical. It was just music. Stravinsky's Firebird yet to be written. Mahler Ravel Debussy had all yet to write some of their most famous works. The tallest building in Chicago in 1908 was 19 stories tall. The Cubs could have heard Take Me Out to the Ball Game in 1908 because it was written that year. Here's an early, perhaps the earliest known recording. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. But the 1908 Cubs couldn't have heard that song at the ball game. No one thought to play Take Me Out to the Ball Game at a ball game until 1934. The following people still walk the earth in 1908. Mark Twain, Leo Tolstoy, Florence Nightingale, Henri Rousseau, Julia Ward Howe, Geronimo. The following people who we know of today as old people, or we used to know as old people before they died, in some cases a long time ago. These people weren't even born in 1908. Ava Braun, Perry Cuomo, Errol Flynn, Adora Welty, Mother Teresa, not born by 1908, an American in 1908, of the same age as I am right now, 44, could have been born as the legally recognized property of another American. 1908 was closer to the presidency of Thomas Jefferson than it is to the presidency of Hillary Clinton, though both are equally distant from the presidency of Donald Trump, because that is an event that is imaginary, though for many years, People thought the same thing about the Cubs winning the World Series. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson likes the acoustic version of Mr. Tambourine Man. In other words, she prefers her bird's hit plane. Chris Berube has been overcome by the popularity of the prairie chicken. In other words, it's quite a hit plain bird. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, was there when Mingus slugged Charlie Parker. He shouted, he plain hit bird. Andy Bowers would imagine attending interleague games in 1978 when a lanky Tigers pitcher would shake off the bun signal and the crowd would root for a plain bird hit. The gist today was fact-checked by Josh Levine, who insisted there were 88.7 million people in 1908. I said it was 86 million. He then proceeded to prove me wrong by naming every one of them. The gist, you know, podcast did not exist in 1908, but I went back and found the first ever reference to podcast. This is real. It's from a book from 1950, United States Exports of Domestic and Foreign Merchandise. And if you go under the heading thermoplastic products, they list a number, 981320, and then they list the following countries, Canada, Mexico, Salvador, Sea Rica, Panama, Bermuda. And all those letters line up to spell the word podcast vertically. Yeah. Oomperu deperu duperu. Thanks for listening.